On this episode of AvTalk, we look at the effects of Hurricane Harvey on aviation and see how airlines are helping with relief efforts. GE Aviation retires the oldest active 747. Southwest Airlines takes delivery of its first MAX, and American Airlines isn't too far behind. We get surprised by the possible new home for the first production A380s. And we again welcome Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren to the podcast to discuss another 747 retirement and how to improve our AvGeek photography. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik and I am here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz for lucky number 13. Lucky number 13. And it's been a, a relatively busy few weeks since we last recorded and our last episode came out. Mainly uh, for you. Have you been doing it? I, I haven't really been up to anything, have you? No, I, I've done absolutely nothing, but <laughs> you've been busy. Uh, well, I have not been, well, I've been busy, but my wife has been busier because we welcomed twins at the beginning of last week. So it's the 29th now. They were born last Monday. So things have been uh, hectic around here, but so everybody's doing well. Rather than sending your hate mail to Ian, send your congratulations this week. There you go. Yeah, podcast at fr24.com. And if you have any suggestions for small children, avgeek apparel or, or things like that, books that you like, we're venturing off a little far afield here, but we're always collecting more avgeek stuff. So Because you got you got to get them started early. I wouldn't know, but I assume that's true. Well, I mean, you you've had you've had interactions with with young av geeks before, so that's I mean, true. you you know how it's it, you know that you got to get kids excited early, and so that's what we've we're working on here. So a little sleep deprived, but otherwise everything's going very well. You don't sleep anyway. Yeah, that's uh, that's also true. That's also very true. The big story that we have to talk about again, it's the, the 29th of August. This week has has been Hurricane Harvey hitting Houston, which has just been a- absolutely devastating. Yeah, this this hurricane, I don't even know if you can call it a hurricane at this point. It's almost something more like just an epic flood in Houston has absolutely ravaged, flooded Houston and I guess the whole surrounding metroplex. I don't really know what you call it, but both major airports, Houston Hobby and Bush Intercontinental have been shut down for days now and they actually won't reopen for some time still as of both, yeah as of yeah, right now the, few days. the faa says houston hobby will not reopen until the 31st at noon so that's thursday and iah won't reopen until let's see the 31st the same time thursday at, at noon and that's an as early as the 31st yeah. as noon so and, it may and that's be later. and that's the the airport being open as far as the FAA is concerned, that's not even getting flights in and out. That's not paying passengers being able to get to the airport or from the right. airport or anything like that. I think like you that. mentioned on Twitter earlier today that just because an airport is open doesn't mean it's actually open. Yeah. That yeah. You- and, and I mean, the airlines that, you know, obviously United, which has the giant hub at Houston, their second largest and their second largest hub in Houston, and then Southwest, which has their they don't call them hubs, but it's a hub at Houston's Hobby Airport. I mean, so they've they've had a lot of flights there, and, and Southwest has gotten a few out. United's been running resupply flights and relief flights for both personnel that got stuck there and bringing relief supplies in from Chicago on a 777-300ER. So, I mean, not, not a small plane by any stretch of the imagination. 
No. Uh, so it's been it's been pretty intense. So the airports themselves are, are mainly okay. They're they're really shut down to prevent people from even trying to get to or from the airport because many of the roads leading to them are completely flooded. And if the airports are open, people are going to try to get to them, and it's going to lead to a whole host of other issues. But the airports are functioning. Both Hobby and Bush Intercontinental are receiving and having departing flights. These are only, though, for either repositioning or for emergency relief flights. And IAH has actually become pretty big of a, of a not a shelter, but a, a staging center for relief supplies coming in and really an organizational hub to get supplies out to the rest of the city. Yeah, it's it's been a pretty incredible effort how many airlines have, you know, gotten flights out that have, you know, had people stranded to the airport because like you said the 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 area around the airport's been flooded so they basically became islands where people were were kind of stranded so they were able to get those people out and then get relief supplies in so that they could to help kind of start the the relief effort there. So it's it's been an impressive effort on the on the part of some of these airlines. Yeah, I believe John Ostrar, who we've had on the show before, had an article up on CNN yesterday that Southwest airlifted about 500 passengers out on five 737 flights out of Hobby yesterday. They got an exemption from the FAA to get passengers out, but they had to leave before sunset because none of the lighting on the airfield is actually working because it was all flooded out and I guess shorted out. Yeah, and, and that's been one of the things the ILS has been out, I think, at both airports. So, the I mean, all of these flights have had to operate, you know, w- without an ILS, which, I mean, isn't incredibly difficult to do. But in, in a storm or in those conditions, like things like that, it, it's, you know, they've gotten special dispensation. I guess. Basically means they can't operate at night. No ILS, no field or runway lighting. They're strictly limited to daytime flights. And hopefully they can get that up and running quickly. But if Hurricane Sandy here in New York taught us anything, they're going to be dealing with lingering issues for years to come from this flooding. Yeah. And one of the things that got posted and, and made its way around social media was a, an artist rendering, I believe, post-Sandy, yeah. illustrating yeah. how bad it could get at LaGuardia. It was a bunch of Delta planes under, you know, halfway underwater. And somebody posted, look, this is a Houston airport right now. And, and Thankfully, a lot of people have done a, a good job, and, and I'm happy to to put a feather in my cap for this one, is, is shooting this down. And it's not Houston. There aren't planes underwater. The airports are actually operating, and they're helping people. Yeah, plenty of planes so, there, actually. Before Harvey struck, Southwest left something like 15 737s at IAH. Thankfully, they're seemingly all okay. But they, they did all leave a, a good chunk of aircraft at these airports. Yeah, so, I mean, it, things have been kind of relief efforts have been working and, and they're working to get the, the airports back open. So we'll see once the airports do open on the 31st and, and obviously we'll be listening, the podcast will be out after that. So we'll, we'll see how it's been either successful to get the airports back up and running or if they're, the airports are open, but not quite operational. Yeah, it, it's definitely been interesting watching the site right now as the search and rescue efforts go on in Houston, watching all of these helicopters buzzing over the Houston area that kind of dip out of coverage as they lower all the way basically to ground level to rescue people pop up. They head back up to one of the airports and then they head straight back out into the city to rescue some more people. This is all day. Yeah, it's been pretty incredible to watch both the helicopters and, and some of the fixed wing aircraft that are that are kind of working in a, I guess a, a spotting capacity, 
where they're kind of where I don't know if we've talked about this, but where, you know, certain aircraft that are fighting wildfires will fly above the fire, kind of pointing out the hot spots. And so there's been some of that above Houston as well, where some of the public safety aircraft have been flying a little bit higher, pointing out where where things need to go and then directing the helicopter traffic. Right. And remember, if you happen to be in an issue like this during a natural disaster, please do not fly a drone. The FAA has temporary flight restrictions specifically preventing that because if you fly a drone, you could interfere with official rescue operations and just nobody needs that. Yeah, especially in in things like this where, you know, there's a lot of aircraft in the air. And and so if they spot a drone, they can't fly. So hopefully I haven't seen any reports of aircraft being grounded because of drone sighting. So that's that's a good sign. No, but just right now, Fox News tweeted a headline with the word shocking in all caps. Drone footage shows historic flooding in Houston. That pisses me off to no end because they're not supposed to be doing that. They're just taking video from YouTube of drones flying over Houston when that's explicitly being said by the by law authorities to not do that exact thing. So please uh, yeah. don't do that. Not that any of our listeners would do anything like no, that. They're, no, they're very but, smart. But hopefully, hopefully somebody will share the podcast with somebody who they you know think might or something like that. But yeah, it, it's you know preaching to the choir. But still, don't fly your drone in a disaster. Don't fly your drone anywhere you're not supposed to. I mean, there's been a big thing. Stockholm's Orlando Airport was shut down. I mean, to you know, traffic had to hold or divert something like four or five times in the past. I want to say six weeks. Because somebody's flying a drone near the airport. I just, mean, so uh, it, it's just two days just ago. I was out at my parents' house, which is somewhat near, pretty close to JFK, and it's on this little lake. And there was a drone actually buzzing around over the lake, and I wanted to like shoot this thing down because it's so close to JFK that this drone's at five hundred feet, and aircraft are only maybe at fifteen hundred, two thousand feet. And it was, it's not, it's not good. Use common sense, people. Use common sense. I feel like that's just good advice for everything, so we'll we'll leave it at that. It's good life advice. Shall we discuss a long life, a long and a long and happy life, and now into retirement? Retirement is good. Retirement is good, and and this retirement is another seven forty seven has been retired, but but this one's actually a really cool seven forty seven. Yeah, this this retirement is well deserved. Well deserved. So so General Electric is a, I mean, they build everything, but GE Aviation builds jet engines. And so when you're building a jet engine, the first thing you do is you put it on a a really interesting looking rig thing, and then you make sure the engine kind of turns on and goes and things like that. But then you need to test the engine on an actual airplane. So a long time ago, in 1992, GE got a 747-100 from Pan Am. Pan Am was done with it, and, and GE Aviation picked it up to use as their engine test bed. So the aircraft actually has competitor engines on it, which I know GE loves to note. It had JT-9Ds on it, which are manufactured by Pratt & Whitney, but that's not the point. Three of the engines were JT-90s, and then the fourth engine was generally, when they were testing it, whatever GE was working on at the point. Right. So, I mean, just some really cool stuff. I think 11 different engines, and obviously the the coolest one is the biggest one, the the GE-90. 
It just looks massive right. on the wing of a 747-100. The GE90 is what you would find on the 777-300ER, and it's just absolutely massive, especially in proportion to the JT90s, the original 747-100 engines. It doesn't, it doesn't look natural. But a little bit of history on this specific airframe. It rolled off the assembly line October 17th, 1969, and flew with Pan Am, had its first flight March 3rd, 1970. It was named Clipper Ocean Spray, flew 21 years with Pan Am, accumulating more than 86,000 flight hours and 18,000 cycles. That's how many times it was pressurized and depressurized before GE acquired it in 1992. And we don't know how many flight hours since then, but I assume it's a lot. That number's out there. So we'll we'll track it down and, and we'll put it in the show notes. Oh, wait, here we go. With GE, 3,600 additional flight hours and 775 cycles before its final flight actually occurred in January of this year. And it's kind don't of- Don't even need the show notes. Yeah, it's been kind of sitting around out in the desert. I guess GE didn't quite know what they wanted to do with it, if they wanted to keep it going or not, but- it's now officially retired. And a well, well-deserved retirement. This has got to be it was, one of the yeah. first ever produced 747s, right? If it was built in It was line number 25. 25. Yep. Wow. And it was the, at the time in January, the last flight, it's the oldest active 747. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, so I know we've talked about 747 200s in the past. Kalita mm-hmm. operating one of the last ones recently, but the 100 blows them all away. Yeah. So, I mean, it, they've replaced it since with a 400. They got a 400 a few years ago, uh 747-400 from Japan Airlines, former Japan Airlines. Was it one of the D models or was it a normal 747? No, it, it, was, it was a regular old 747-400. It had winglets, but to save weight and because they don't really care as far as the engine testing and things go, they chopped the winglets off. Oh, the horror. So now it looks like a 747-400D, the, the domestic model produced for Japan that didn't have winglets originally, but it's actually a regular 747-400. That's confusing. So that, that is my pedantic entry into 747-400 wingletology today. Right. I'm just looking at the list of some of the engines this specific frame tested. The GE90, the GE-NX, which you'd find on what, the 747-8? And the 787, yeah. Yeah, the engine aligns GP7200, CF34, CFM56, and Elite Passport for biz jets. Just a ridiculous amount of history on this airframe. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> what's great about it, I mean, if you look at the flight paths, and, and we'll post a link to that, it's it's basically they just take off from Victorville and fly around in, in kind of a, a rounded triangle for hours on end, and, and then they land, and that's that's how they test the engine. So it's not necessarily exotic flying, but well worth it. Do we know what other kind of engine test beds are out there? I know Honeywell has a 7.5, which they they test their BizJet engines out on. What does Pratt yeah, use? Pratt, Pratt & Whitney uses a 747 SP. That's right. Which is, is really, I mean, just the SP is one of the coolest planes. I guess it's one of those planes where you either love it or you hate it, based on how you feel about the aesthetics of it. What about Rolls? But that's what they use. Rolls uses a 747... 400. So basically, the 747 is the engine testing king. Well, it helps when you have, you know, 75% of your power left if the engine you're testing goes out. Hey, maybe this is what the fate of the A380. This is maybe the 
the option we've all been looking for for the used A380s. The used A380 market will become the, I guess, engine test bed. So, but we we will talk about used A380s a little bit later in the program. But now we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about 747s retiring, because Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, who is a regular contributor to USA Today and becoming a regular guest on the program, he's going to talk about his experience on the EVA Air passenger 747 retirement and fill us in a little bit on how to make our avgeek photos a little bit better so stick around after a quick break we'll talk with him as promised we're back with jeremy dwyer lindgren who recently flew on the final evia air 74 passenger 747 flight welcome back jeremy and Thanks for coming on to to talk about this. Another in the what seems to be a very long list of seven four seven retirements this year. Yeah, it's going to be a, a long year. And thank you for having me back yet again. And EVA first of a bunch this fall with Delta and United both following sometime later in the year. It's going to be a tough one for seven forty seven lovers. So tell us about was it a special flight or was it just only special to those that that knew what was happening? It was sort of a special flight. The airline had been running the airplane to Shanghai for quite some time doing regional flights after it wrapped up Vancouver maybe a month or two ago. But it switched to Hong Kong for the last flight. I never quite figured out why. And it had a big banner at the gate. And the last flight had a couple of little additions like a candy box with the last 747 on it and they gave out certificates at the end but otherwise it was fairly subdued from the airline approach but the passengers it was like a madhouse for the entire 90 minutes how so the moment that seatbelt sign came off it just people just poured into the aisles and were trying to they were trying to get the flight attendants to sign everything and before the flight there was a line going up to the flight deck that extended all the way back the deck, top deck, all the way down the stairs, and then out into the boarding area. There were just people waiting to get onto that. And then there were like 12 people that just wanted to get to Taipei, and they had no clue what was going on. <laughs> that was kind of fun. So how many safety cards were left on that 747 by the time the whole thing was done? Zero. It was pick clean. There was maybe a lot, a lot of people grabbed one or two of their own, but any anything that was missed or those... 12 people that happened to just be going to Taipei. People went through after the flight, you know, row by row, just checking the seat back pockets, thumbing through the literature, trying to find those last safety cards. There was there was nothing left. If they could get their hands on it and take it off, it was gone. What replaced the 7-4 in EVA's fleet? A 777-300 that's been the backbone of theirs for a while. EVA brought in the 747 in 92, if I'm correct was a major player in their expansion previously they were just using seven sixes and I, I can't recall if they had md11s at the time yet but they launched north america services obviously at this point they're a fairly large established player in north america to asia markets and the airplane 747 built them up and helped them grow get started but it's been gradually replaced as many of them are now by the triple seven and specifically the, the 300 version, which matches the range, or close to matches the range, and same with capacity. 
and it's way more efficient. I guess that's the same deal as what's going on basically across the street with China Airlines, that they're taking 777-300ERs at the same time. They're also retiring their 747s, but are they on the chopping block as soon as they are at EVA? No, the China triple set or China 747s, I believe, are around for a little while longer. I, I couldn't tell you how much. But when I was there, there were still, in Taipei, there were still three, maybe four, but I think it's still three left flying out and back every day. Yeah. I mean, when I was on it in April earlier this year, it was old, but in really good condition still, at least on the interior. That's what I heard. It looks certainly like it's quite nice up in, up in first class, was it? Yeah, first class up in, the, up in the nose, of course, which brings me to my next question. Where did you sit? I was in 10K right behind the R1 door. So okay. it was technically business class. EVA starts at 6, so it was 6, 7, 8, 9 in the forward nose section. And then right behind that first door on the right-hand side, row 10, and that's where I was. Did EVA have economy upstairs or business upstairs in the upper deck? That's one of the things that makes EVA rather unique. Once they got rid of their first class product, which I can't recall exactly when that was, but they got rid of first. And unlike most airlines that use the upper deck for its exclusivity to pack in premium passengers, EVA decided to make a mini 737 on a 747 and put it upstairs. So it's all economy on the upper deck. So 3-3 three, three seating, I guess, up, that, up top? Yep, 3-3 three, three seating, and wanted to get a nice shot with a fisheye lens of everyone looking happy up on the top deck, you know, cheering and everything after they were seated. And there's a one guy in the first row who just wanted to get to Taipei who sat there with his arms crossed scowling at me and ruined it. Well, how would you feel if you were that guy if you're trying to get from Chicago to, like, Des Moines or something, and it just happens to be a special flight? Like, <laughs> just want to get to Des Moines. I'm an geek, so I'm going to be pretty happy. <laughs> Fair enough. Though, I would also be pretty happy because that might mean the end of the CRJ 200s. That's true. And that is something we can all cheer about. Yeah, we, we could definitely have a party about that. So did you eventually at any point get up to 1A or I guess 1F on the right side to get that view out the front? I never got it for photos. I wandered my way up there after the... I, I got to go up in the front, but they had some ultra... It looked like they were ultra frequent flyers who were up in the first couple rows, and they didn't look like they want to be bothered. And we try to respect that. So I left them alone, and I came up and looked out the front after landing. But I still have not not cracked the, the 1A experience yet. It's a good one. I highly recommend it. I hear that. I hear that. I've heard a lot about it. But I, if I recall, you had something blocking that window, and that's just such a shame. Yeah, you know? unfortunately. To, to be all the way there and just have it not be quite what it yeah, could have that, been. Yeah, that was rough. Unfortunately, yeah. at least on some of the China Airlines 747s, even if you're in 1A, the old IFE monitor is fixed right in the spot and right in your field of view where you would want to see out the window and it can't be moved, which was kind of really unfortunate but it was a super cloudy day when i flew anyway so there wasn't much to see but i don't know anything on an airplane can be moved if you really try hard enough they might I was not gonna say, have like that though you gotta wait for the retirement flight when you know it's going to the desert and then you bring a crowbar right i mean they don't it's need doable. that screen anymore no they don't that was definitely the approach people took TVA. if they could if they could get it off it went we're actually speaking to Jeremy. Jeremy is sitting in one of the seats from the airplane that he managed to unscrew Comfy. and take home. You'd be surprised how generous the baggage allowance is on return <laughs> flights. 
So while you were there between Taipei and Hong Kong, did you manage to get any spotting done? Yeah, I did a little photo work, Hong Kong and and Taipei, just for a couple hours in each. I didn't have a ton of time because it was mostly work. And at this point, a lot of the airplane photo stuff I do is is work as well, and that it's for USA Today galleries and content for their parent company. I do this thing on Twitter every now and then, just like this running series that I, I call Airlines You've probably never heard of before and i'm assuming you probably saw a couple of them out in taipei no taipei's traffic if you spend a couple days there you'll definitely see some interesting things same thing with hong kong but for the most part they're all and especially hong kong they're all names that i'm mostly familiar with any strange ones well i did see palau pacific i'm probably butchering that pronunciation but Palau Pacific Airways, PPA. I saw them in Hong Kong. They have one plane. They serve a tiny little island nation as the charter, 1737. I think it was an 800. And they they run to Taipei as well, but I saw them in Hong Kong. For the most part, you see all the big airplanes just about everywhere by this point. If you live in a place like New York or near San Francisco or L.A., you can see all the big guys. It's the narrow bodies. And some of the regional A330s that tend to show up with the weird carriers and the odd airlines. That's the same thing. Weird carriers, not airlines, but whatever. (laughs) So I wanted to get back to the photo thing because you mentioned that you do professional work and and we've discussed that a little bit in the past. And I thought it would be good to to just kind of pick your brain a little bit for, I know a lot of people that, that listen to the podcast are av geeks, but a lot of people are also kind of new to being interested in planes and taking pictures of planes and things like that. And taking pictures of planes can be a bit different than, you know, taking pictures of of your kids or of, you know, just landscapes and things like that when you're on vacation. So can you give us some advice on on somebody who wants to get into plane spotting, kind of where they should start and, and what they should kind of focus on? Well, it always helps to have a camera and be near a runway. I found that to be very essential. If you have a Learjet, you can do some real fun stuff, but let me know if you do, because that will be pretty fun. Canon or Nikon? Yeah, at some point, Canon or Nikon, it really doesn't matter. They both make good cameras. They both make good lenses. I'm a Canon guy because that's what the lenses I had when I started moving up. And lenses are where a lot of the investment is, if anyone who's already in this knows. Once you're kind of sunk on the lenses, it's pretty hard to change. But Nikon certainly has competitive products, and I've used them in the past uh, working with other places, and they're great. Sony makes a pretty good product. Leica makes a good product that's going to be tough to find lenses big enough for that so so if i'm if i'm looking to you know if i'm just starting getting going and i'm looking to buy a, a dslr a, a camera what are the things i should look for as far as kind of you know just just kind of getting started i find that if you're going with any one of the major name brand cameras you're going to be fine what a lot of people could do that they don't necessarily think of is, is go with used and use can provide a good value to get a model up beyond the price point that you're looking for, but for the same price point. So if you consider the Canon 5D series, you might not, you might be thinking of, man, I really love that Canon 5D4, but it's 3,500 US. That's too much money. But the 5D2, which is still full frame, still very capable, just a little slow, 
is selling at 800, 900 used, which is a pretty good deal if that's what you're looking for. Same thing with some of the faster bodies. You can get the very popular prosumer 7D2 for Canon, and I'm sure they're a Nikon and Sony equivalents, but just for the sake of what I know, 72. But you can also get the 1D Mark III or 4 for a very similar price point. And then the 4 offers several advantages like weather sealing and other things that make it a little bit easier to stick around outside a little longer and a, not indestructible because I've broken one, but closer to indestructible than some of the other ones. So it, it, you can get a lot more for your money in, in terms of capability looking at the used route. And often you can go Canon Refurb offers some good deals. You can go with places like B&H or Adorama. A lot of big cities will have local, reputable local camera stores that will do good work on refurbs as well. And that can often be a great route to go. As most of my gear at this point has been bought used. What's your go-to lens, which is almost more important than the body itself? My go-to lens is the... <laughs> For plain stuff, usually is the 400 2.8, which is not, which is not necessarily the best spotter example. I, I've oh. seen I've seen Jeremy carry that particular lens, and it's that, it's not small. No, that's a lot more reach than you probably need. So, 400 on on a full frame is good just about anywhere. I have not a lot of trouble using that on a full frame. Uh, yeah, on a crop frame like what I have, that'd be way too much. Yeah, on a, on a crop frame, that's going to put you at somewhere over 600, 630 millimeters, somewhere in that neighborhood. But a 70 to 200 or a 70 to 300 is a good versatile reach that will cover everything from walking around at the gate to when you're outside shooting at your local airfield. And a 300 on a crop body is going to be pretty powerful. Yeah, 70 to 300 is exactly what I have, and I find it covers Almost every situation. Yeah, and I can't tell you the number of times that I wish I didn't have Crimea River, but that I didn't have that big thing to lug around, and I would trade it for a the new 100-400 or the 70-300. to 300. And I've done that on some international trips. It's just too much to take, and so I'll, I'll rent a 100-400 and take that instead. So before we let you go, one last question is, what are some of the mistakes that, that people make when they're taking photos, when they're plane spotting, that tend to you know make the photos come out less perfect than you'd like? I think one of the big ones is not paying attention to the ISO and coming out with photos that are, this get, gets a little technical, but a lot of people don't pay attention to the ISO. And depending on your camera body, if you let it go too high, they come out really grainy. And especially if you're shooting on a cloudy day, that will show up very quickly. That makes a lot of new photographers frustrated and unhappy, especially if they're getting into the site upload pipeline, like to Jet Photos or that competitor that shall not be named. <laughs> and so that can really frustrate people a lot. And the faster that you can learn the difference between ISO, aperture, and shutter speed, the quicker you'll be able to manage all of those and get a lot creative, a lot more creative, a lot faster. But usually the thing that I find is, is people are keeping their ISO and not managing it super well because they're just not familiar with it yet, which just takes time and practice. 
and oftentimes that will lead to the shutter speed being too low and the shots are blurry because of the motion blur. So what you're saying is put the camera on automatic and let it deal with it. <laughs> oh, you can boy. do that. <laughs> that often leads to the ISO being way too high. Usually, so that we could get all into that if you want, but that's going to take that's a podcast unto itself. J- Jason and I are going to go practice. We're going to take some photos and we'll come back with some results maybe. And we'll have Jeremy back on in a future episode so he can, can critique our our photography. Jeremy. Ah, uh, we can make it like chopped. Yes, there you go. <laughs> oh, he's going to chop Jer- the hell out of mine. <laughs> I hope so. Have you considered taking peanut butter off that lens cover, Jason? Ouch. Look, I haven't charged my DSLR <laughs> since I was in Anchorage, Alaska with you last December. So I got a lot of work to do. Well, Jason's going to go charge his batteries, and we will talk to Jeremy again in a future episode. Jeremy, thanks so much for filling us in on the EVA final 747 flight and giving us a few pointers on what we can do to make our plane spotting trips a little bit more fruitful. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, and look forward to being back again. I appreciate Jeremy taking the time to to fill us in on on what one of those retirement flights is like, because you always kind of wonder what it's going to be like from the airline's perspective. Are they going to make a big deal out of it? Are they you know going to care? Or is it going to be something that it's just the people on board notice? And, and I feel bad for that one guy in the front row who just kind of got stuck there going to type it. Yeah, what are the odds, right? But you know what? He got to join up for some history and he didn't even know it. Well, I mean, and and, and that's the way you go. Other history, well, not really history, but just finally happening. Southwest got their first 737 MAX today. Southwest, of course, was supposed to be the launch customer. They're, I guess, fourth in line now, fifth in line now. It's Well, there are two airlines currently operating it now, right? Norwegian and Batik Malaysia or Melindo Air, whatever we want to call them this month. I guess it's two and a half. If we consider Batik and Melindo two separate, it could be three. But it's kind of kind of crazy that they're just taking delivery now because those uh, Maxes have been sitting out and, and renting for a long time now. Yeah, yeah. So the the first ones the first one got delivered to Dallas today, and I guess the I don't want to call it a, a rumor, but the the plan I guess is that there could be more delivery flights later in the week to just kind of collect them all at this point. So hopefully they they get into service pretty soon because it'll be it'll be interesting to see 737 Max is kind of starting to replace some of Southwest's more well worn. Yeah, 737s. they're uh, replacing the the classics that they still have in the fleet, the 300s, which have to exit the fleet I think before the Maxes are allowed to enter the fleet due to pilot contracts. So if you like the 300s, fly them now because they're they're leaving the fleet real quick. <laughs> There's one person running to Southwest to book a flight. <laughs> one. They've got the old seats. Some people prefer them, so they might be that, uh, That's more true, yeah. Speaking of the Max 2, I booked actually Americans first 73 Max flight was loaded into the schedule. Oh, you're going to do the the Miami, the Miami turn? I'm going to do out of LaGuardia. I guess I'm going to be on okay. the second flight LaGuardia down to Miami and then turn back up to beautiful LaGuardia. I'm sure there will be no delays and it will be perfect, but... No. What could go wrong? I'm not super excited about it, but excited enough about it to, you know, actually book it using real people money. So where are you sitting? 
Where am I sitting? I have no status with American at the moment, so I am sitting in like the fifth to last row window seat in the back because that's the only seat I can pick that I don't have to pay extra for. So what's the pitch on this particular seat? 30 inches, give or take. So I do hope that you'll report back after you've flown. Of course. And and let us know how your knees feel. Well, I mean, yeah, hopefully I still have some knees to talk about. <laughs> I mean, it could be worse. It could, it could be, be worse. worse. They almost went with 29-inch pitch in some rows, but logic and reason prevailed, and that is not happening. And and the international outcry didn't, didn't hurt much on that front. No, no, it didn't. So we talked about this uh, earlier in passing, but there is hope for used A380s, or at least there might be. And the hope is coming from a weird strange unexpected place high fly if you even know who high fly is there's a good chance you've never heard of them before but high fly is a portuguese wet lease dry lease i, I guess a, a charter airline pseudo airline they don't actually sell tickets i i think it's basically an airline that other airlines call when they need an aircraft to operate a flight as Norwegian does quite often. And apparently their CEO has confirmed that they will be snatching up two used A380s in, well, there's no timeline yet, but probably sometime in 2018. And there are only a couple used A380s out there that are available. And I know where they are coming from. And that would be Singapore who's decided they want to exit from their fleet. The earliest A380, actually the very first Passenger A380 9V SKA. And this was really, really shocking that High Fly of all airlines would want A380s. I did not see that one coming. No, I don't think anyone did. I, I, I will tell you, I did not see that one coming. I mean, they're kind of a hodgepodge. They have a, a, a very varied fleet, but it's almost all Airbus A320s, A330s, a whole host of different A340s. So I guess the A380 makes sense, but it's. I can't imagine leasing A3, wet leasing or dry leasing A380s and thinking you could reasonably fill those up. Like, who needs that? I mean, that that's, I guess, for HiFly to figure out. But I mean, I, I mean they're, if they're going to take them, they're betting that somebody's going to need those. I mean, I don't know how many seats they'll end up putting in. I can tell you exactly how many seats. The, oh, okay. 560 seats in a two-class configuration. Well, there you go then. 560 is a lot, but remember, before TransAero ceased being an airline, they were going to do something like 650. So it could be worse, but 560 passengers is a lot of people on a, a chartered A380. Perhaps they could do what Malaysia is trying to do with their A380s and doing it for Hajj pilgrimage flights. But to have these the whole year, I, I don't know what they're going to do with them if this actually does come to fruition. Well, if you and your, you know, 550, wait, 560 seats total? 560. So if you and 559 of your closest friends starting next year need an aircraft, call Highfly. Right. They'll get one right out from Lisbon Port. There you go. So the last thing I wanted to, to talk about this week was kind of a follow-up from, from our last episode, and, and the Air Berlin insolvency had just kind of popped up as we were recording the last episode. And in the intervening few weeks, Air Berlin's kind of started winding down their operations. I told you not to book a flight on them. 
I booked 10. Oh, Should I not have done that? No, you, you're, you're going to have some trouble. Oh, boy. But, so yeah. I, yeah, go ahead. Can you, you know a little bit more about which routes are kind of on the chopping block. So yeah, I'll, I'll Air Berlin, you... until they figure out what exactly it is they're going to sell off to, probably probably Lufthansa, well, as, as we mentioned, we'll end up getting a lot of them, but a lot of the long-haul routes, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, those routes are going to be cut sometime in October or really fall towards the winter. They will shut down the Double Daily Berlin Abu Dhabi as well, which was only, I think that started being a thing after Eddie had started pumping money into the airline, but Chicago, San Francisco, LA, I think those are the routes. Dusseldorf, Boston, ATW Online reporting that will close from October 1st, which is earlier than the other routes. But other routes, seemingly JFK, Miami, Fort Myers, those will stay for the time being. And a bunch of their other Caribbean and Central America routes. But I would not, I wouldn't hold my breath on any of those routes sticking around longer than a couple months. So as this kind of shakes out, we'll, we'll keep checking in on it because it's going to be interesting to see. There are a lot of planes here and where they end up is going to be... I, I think a really interesting thing, how Air Berlin kind of well, basically gets parted out. Yeah, it, it's not a small fleet. They have 11 A319, 64 A320, 6 A321, 17 A330 200s, 5737 7 7 8 7 7 7 7 7 7 7 7 7 7 7 7 7 7 7 fleet, aircraft fleet, not including the subsidiary Nikki, which Nobody knows what's happening with them. That deal fell through a while back, and they're just kind of kind of there with their own 19 aircraft, 17 A321s, and a pair of 7.3s. And all of those planes have to go somewhere. They so can we'll, be we'll yours keep our if the price is right. <laughs> For you and 559 of your closest friends. So, again, the recommendation is do not book a flight on Air Berlin, because there might not be an Air Berlin by the time your flight comes around. Always good advice to to book flights on on airlines that you think will be around when your ticket comes due. Yeah, another a rather large airline that will end up on cranky flyers post mortem at the end of the year. <laughs> I love that list, and, and we'll look forward to that one too. <laughs> uh, sad. Well, thanks for listening to episode thirteen of Av Talk, Jason. I want to thank you for your patience this week as as we dealt with you know, getting everything scheduled around my crazy schedule. So thanks for that. And thanks everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. And we'll be back next time with episode 14. Thanks for listening. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone.